0: 1st Samuel 7 tonight. We're definitely going to try to get through 1st Samuel 7 and we'll see if we're able to get through 8. I'm not necessarily expecting that, but I'm prepared if we're able to, so we'll see what we can get through. I've asked Craig to lead us in prayer as we begin here. God. So last week or uh, I guess Sunday we finished up chapter 6 and so where we're at here is that the ark has been changing hands it's come into the hands of the Philistines and it's it's bounced around to all different Philistine cities and it's been all throughout the land of Philistia and finally the Philistines decide look we've just got to send this back to the Israelites. This is not going well for us. We're going to send it back to the Israelites. And so they do that, and Israel gets it back. The, the people are rejoicing. They're excited. They've got it back. But we find that they don't treat the ark any better than the Philistines did. They fall into the same trap of not knowing how to respect God's glory not knowing how to respond in the presence of the ark. And they actually end up doing something similar. First of all, they open the ark, and they should not have done that. The Lord strikes some people dead. We don't know how many people. There's so much confusion there with the number. But at least 70 people die because of this, because they've opened opened the ark of the Lord, and they should not. And so then they ship it off to kiriath Jiram, And that's where it stays for a while here. That's where we're going to pick up in chapter 7. Just like with the Philistines, it comes into one place and they start, they say, we don't want it here. And they start sending it other places. That's what happens in Israel. The, the place where it comes initially, they don't want it there in Beth Shemesh. And so they send it off to kiriath Jearim. Now, there is a very important question that's asked in 6.20. And what is that question that the people ask in in chapter 6, verse 20? Who is able to stand? Who can stand? before the Lord. This is right after the people have been struck dead, after they open the ark and look into it. Who can stand before the Lord? Dad made the point that really the rest of the Bible is going to answer the question, who can stand before the Lord? Very specifically, chapter 7 is going to answer the question, who can stand before the Lord? Think about the people's response in the short term. Uh, the short-term response in verses 20, chapter 6, verses 21 through 7-1, the response there is, we're just going to send the ark of the Lord away. The ark of the Lord has gotten us into trouble. We looked into it. We shouldn't have done that. Some people were struck dead. Let's just get it away from our sight. And so their response there is, no one can stand before the glory of the Lord. And they're half Right. No one can stand before the glory of the Lord. But Samuel is going to show them here in chapter 7, by God's grace, how we are able to stand. What our hearts and our minds and our attitudes should be if we are to come before a holy God as sinful people. So that is, how, that is what chapter 7 is about, and that is the question that's going to be answered through this chapter. Okay, let me begin by reading. I'm going to read, starting in chapter 7, verse 2. We went through 7-1 last time. So I'm going to start in chapter 7, verse 2, and just read the chapter and get it before us here. And it happened, from the day the ark dwelled in Kiriath-Jerim, that the days grew many and became twenty years, and the whole house of Israel was drawn before the Lord. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, saying, If with your whole heart you now return to the Lord, put away the alien gods from your midst and the Ashtaroth, and set your heart firm for the Lord and serve him alone, that he may rescue you from the hand of the Philistines. And the Israelites put away the Belen and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord alone. And Samuel said assemble all Israel at Mizpah that I may intercede for you before the Lord and they assembled at Mizpah and they drew water and spilled it before the Lord and they fasted on that day and there they said we have offended we have offended the Lord and Samuel judged Israel at Mizpah And the Philistines heard that the Israelites had assembled at Mizpah, and the Philistine overlords came against Israel, and the Israelites heard and were afraid of the Philistines. And the Israelites said to Samuel, Do not hold still from crying out for us to the Lord our God, that he will deliver us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took one suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering before the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord on behalf of Israel, and the Lord answered him. And just as Samuel was offering up the offering, and the Philistines drew near to do battle with Israel, and the Lord thundered with a great sound on that day upon the Philistines, and panicked them, and they were routed before Israel." And the men of Israel sallied forth from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as Beth And Samuel took a single stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen, and he called its name Ebenezer, and he said, As far as here the Lord has helped us. And the Philistines were brought low and they no longer came into the Israelite camp, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel and the towns of the Philistines and the towns that the Philistines had taken from the territory Israel retrieved from the hand of the Philistines and there was peace between Israel and the Amorite and Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life and he would go about from year to year and come round to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah and would judge Israel in all those places and his point of return was Ramah, for there, was his, for there his home was. And here he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. So what do we find out in verse 2 of chapter 7? How long has the ark of God been here in Kiriath-Jerim? Remember, this is where they sent it initially, once there's those, those, those 70 or how many ever deaths. So they send it to kiriath Jearim. How long does it stay here? 20 years. 20 years, 20 years it's in kiriath Jearim. Now, we don't know anything about what's going on with the Ark of the Lord. We, it doesn't seem like this, this man who's taking care of it is a, a Levite. But we don't know anything about how he's taking care of it. All that we know is that it doesn't seem to be involved in worship at this point in Israel's history. So the the idea is that it is separate, and they're not using it in worship. What do we find out in the following verses? Like in verse 3, for instance, what has replaced the Ark of the Lord? What religion has taken over in, in place of worshiping the Lord?
1: They began worshiping Baal
2: and the Asherah, and uh, so they were worshiping the gods of the land that they had first
0: conquered. those gods? Yes, exactly. These these nations that they're still doing battle with, they're still having trouble getting kicked out of the land. Um, these are these are the gods that they're worshiping. Um, some remember you've got. Um, In chapter 5, you've got Dagon falling down before the Ark of the Lord because he can't do anything. And so he is bowing down and uh, is powerless before the Ark of the Lord. These are the kinds of gods that they're worshiping right now. Instead of the Lord, they're worshiping these these idols that can't do anything. This tells us something, though, about human nature. Um, We will worship somebody. We will worship something. There will be a religion. Nature hates a vacuum. So when, when God is taken away, we're not worshiping God, it's not that there's just no worship going on. It's not that that remains vacant. Instead, what happens is something is going to fill that. Something is going to take over that vacancy. So instead of their worshiping God, they're instead they've replaced that with worshiping these other idols, these other nations gods who who they should have defeated. Um, This is who they have decided to worship. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of the parable that Jesus tells where um, he cast out the the demons from this man and but the man doesn't go home and, and replace that void with something good he doesn't go home and use his time wisely and, and put God in place of those demons instead um, he just leaves that it. And what happens is seven demons, worse than before, come and, and take over that man. Because when we get rid of something in our lives, we have to replace it, um, or, or it's going to be worse than it was in the first place. So here, instead of worshiping the Lord, they have turned to other idols. And so what does Samuel tell them in chapter 3? What, what do they have, in verse 3 of chapter 7, what do they have to do? Yes, put away their idols. He, he kind of, this is, this, is a, this is a sermon here in verse 3 because it has three points. Um, and that's, that's how you know that it's a sermon. So you've got, first of all, they have to put away their gods. They have to replace that vacancy with God, with the Lord God. And then they have to depend upon God for deliverance. So put away their gods, replace that vacancy with God, and then rely on Him for deliverance. This is what we have to do in the midst of trial, in the midst of of when our life is going wrong and when everything is is looking bad, we have to get back to the roots of what is causing that problem. We have to get back to understanding that our sin is, is causing the problems in our lives. Remember in, in chapter 4, where you've got the, they lose the battle, they, they realize that they lost the battle to the Philistines because the Lord had caused them not to win. And so what is their response to that? They just go and they get the Ark of the Lord and they bring it into battle and they think, okay, we, you know, we've got them this time. Well... The problem with that approach is is they are trying to solve the problem at the end. Instead of looking at the root problem, which is the fact that they were not depending upon God. They were not looking to Him, and there was sin in their life that they had not taken care of. And so when we look over the root problem, we end up just compounding the problem, as they did by taking the ark into battle. But chapter 7 is a reversal of that. They instead are looking to Samuel for advice here, and Samuel is saying, look at the root problem. Your sin is the root problem. The fact that you're not worshiping God is the root problem, and the fact that you are not relying upon him for deliverance. That's the problem. That is the reason why you can't cast out the Philistines. So do those three things, and it's going to turn your life around. And so what is the people's response then in verses 5 and 6 he gathers all of Israel together what is the people's response Yes against the Lord Samuel Yes Yes absolutely we have sinned against the Lord we have offended the Lord and they turn to him Notice Notice, um, what verse is this? Verse 6, yes. Yes, they fast and they spill water out onto the ground. What is the purpose of
3: this? What are they showing in this? Those are things that they had to have to survive. I think they're showing their trust is in God.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. I, I think this is hard for us to wrap our arms around. But, you know, you, you go to the, the sink and you turn it on and you get water coming out of it. you got water coming out of your refrigerator. We have water everywhere, and so we don't think about that as being as necessary as it is. Well, we understand it's necessary. We don't understand how difficult it would have been to come by. So you've got the people of Israel here. They are coming before the Lord. They've decided not to eat. They've decided to fast. And then all the water they have, they're just pouring it out before the Lord. And they're saying, okay, in the past, we have not depended on you. We've not put our our trust in you. But now, that's all going to change. And we are going to rely on you. We're going to rely on you to give us the strength that we would normally get from food. And to quench our thirst in the way that we would normally get that from water. And they are completely relying upon the Lord instead of these these physical needs that they have. So they're putting away their, their basis needs, their basis desires in order to, to focus on the Lord and to serve Him and to realize that He is going to provide those things for them. Okay? And so they come before Him, they come before the Lord, they realize they've offended Him, and Samuel judges them at Mizpah. Well, the Philistines hear about this, and they think they they hear that Israel is all in the same place. And they think, well, this is a good time for us to wipe out all of Israel at once. And so they come against Israel. Israel's all gathered at Mizpah, um, and so this is a great time. They come, and the Israelites hear that the Philistines are coming. And so, what is their response in verse 8? What do they say to Samuel? It is in verse 8, isn't it? Yes. <clears throat> i
1: okay, uh, Well, they go to Samuel. And they say, don't stop praying for us. The Lord can save us. What's really interesting about all of this is the first time they went to war against the Philistines, uh, no indication that they even inquired of the Lord, and they lost. And so the second time says, well, we'll do it again. This time we'll put the ark in front of us. And they lost. This time they say, Samuel, pray to God for us. That he may say us, and that exactly he does. They don't lift a handle it until he's already sent the, the, Philistine, the Philistines running. And, and another interesting point about this is the Philistines didn't run their lesson. I, I would think that the adventure of the army yeah.
3: would have been enough to say, I'm not getting anywhere near those Israelites. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I, I think you see true repentance here, too. I mean, you, you see people that are completely turning their lives around, putting their trust in the Lord. And when all of this is going on, they're afraid that they go to God. They want Samuel to keep crying out to God for them. Absolutely. You.
0: So very good comments there. This does show a change in the way that they've responded in the past, like you said. So in chapter 4, um, we see, they don't even see through the Lord in the first place. Um, and then they're, they're realizing that the reason that they lost is the Lord is upset at them for some reason, but they don't ask the Lord about that. They just, they just try to come up with their own idea. Here, from the get-go, they are seeking the Lord they are coming to him and they are asking him do not stop crying out to the Lord what happens when we change our lives just like Samuel told them that they had to do um, how they had to put away their idols trust in the Lord and look to him in the midst of danger, what happens when we pledge those things in our lives and we say, this is what we're going to do. We're going to change. We're going to be better. We're going to do these things. We're going to rely on God. What happens is God sends us a test. That's what happens here to the people of Israel. We've said, God, we're going to do this. We've changed. We're better. And God says, show me that you've changed. Show me that you trust in me. Here's an opportunity to show me that you trust in me. When we're here, when we're we're in the midst of the congregation together, and we're worshiping together, it is easy to show our faith to each other. It's easy to be strong. But when we go out into the midst of the world, that's when the challenges come. So they've just been united in the congregation. They're together, and they're strong and so God sends the, the Philistines and he says, now here's an opportunity to show me that you're going to trust in me. And they do. They trust in the Lord. They tell Samuel, do not stop interceding for us. Remember back in chapter 2 when um, you've got Eli talking to Hothman and Phineas and he says, these things that you're doing are so bad if you... If you do something to offend your brother, another brother can intercede for for you. But if you do something to offend the Lord, and what does Eli say? What does Eli say about when we offend the Lord? There's nobody who can intercede for you. Well, that's that's not true. The priest was supposed to intercede for the people. And here we see Samuel, the prophet, the priest, He is fulfilling that role. He is crying out to the Lord. He is interceding for the people. He is taking on that role that Eli failed to to take on, to be a a go-between between between the Lord and the people and to cry out to the Lord in order that the Lord will save. So he... And I love the way that this is stated. Um, in, In verses 9 and 10... Samuel is offering a burnt offering and he is crying out to the Lord. And then it the Lord has just already defeated the enemy at this point. As, As he is crying out to the Lord and he's offering this sacrifice, he's crying out for the people, the Lord has already thundered against the Philistines and by the time that the Israelites get out there, they're just sort of cleaning up Behind, Because the Lord has confused the the Philistines and he has thundered against them with a great sound and he has destroyed them. And so Israel routed the Philistines, not because of some great military technique or some great planning. They just followed the Lord out to battle and the Lord won for them. we have seen the power of of god so far in the book in just thinking about the past couple of chapters in chapter five and well several times even once in chapter seven we saw the hand of the lord mentioned but the the hand of the lord is pictured as as being so strong and bringing all of these plagues against the philistines In this chapter, we see that the Lord doesn't even need to use his hand. He can just use his voice. And this is where he thunders against the Philistines. And that destroys them and confuses them. And so the Lord is powerful. Who else would we put our trust in when this one who is so powerful that he can use his hand or use his voice and rout the enemy? Uh, Who else would we want to put our trust in? We mentioned repentance as this, that being a theme of the chapter for sure. The last part of the chapter, the theme is for us to remember. So we want to repent, we want to turn from our sins. But then it's, it's equally important that we remember what the Lord has done for us. We remember the victories that he's brought us in the past. So look at verse 12, and this is something that we referenced on last Wednesday night. Um, but Ebenezer, this stone that Samuel sets up, he wants to remember what the Lord has done for the people. And he says, as far as here, the Lord has helped me the Lord has helped us up until this point I put a question about this I'm not sure if anybody got to do this but did anybody get to read the book of Habakkuk and try to make some connections with with uh, 1 Samuel 7 here? if so does anybody have any thoughts on that I thought that this was, this is what came to mind, because I've studied through Habakkuk recently, and so this, this was an example that came readily to mind about the idea of remembering the Lord's deliveries, deliverances in the past. In the book of Habakkuk, it's a, it's a strange prophet, because instead of the, the prophet speaking to the people, the prophet Habakkuk is just crying out to the Lord for the whole book. And it is a conversation between the Lord and, and Habakkuk. So in the beginning of the book, in Habakkuk 1, Habakkuk cries out to the Lord and says, There's so much wickedness. How long are you going to let this go on? And the Lord responds and he says, I'm not going to let it go on. You are the Lord is going to send a nation against them and be destroyed. It's going to be the Babylonians. Well, he says, well, he he responds, Habakkuk then responds to that. He says, Well, I don't how could you send them? They're more wicked than we are. And the Lord responds by talking about how great He is and how powerful He is and how He is going to bring about. Something that is good, if only he will trust in him. He says, Your response just needs to be to be righteous, to live righteously, and to trust in me. And so at the end of the book, in, in Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk offers a prayer to the Lord, a prayer of praise. And nothing has changed, it doesn't seem, in Habakkuk's situation, just his attitude. And he prays to the Lord a prayer of remembering time after time the victories that the Lord has brought in the past. He, he goes through Israelite history and remembers different great victories of the past. And he pulls them out and he says, because of this, I'm going to trust... In the Lord, he says at the very end of the book in Habakkuk three, uh, beginning in verse seventeen. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, fruit, food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of deer. The the point is, and and read the book for yourself. It is much better than than my summary of it. But the the point is, remembering the history of God's deliverance is proof that He will deliver again. When we look back and we see God delivered me from this situation, or God delivered those people in that situation. We can know, we can have faith and belief and strength and hope in the fact that He's going to do that again because that's the kind of God that He is. We were talking about
2: Eli and Samuel, and if you look at Eli, our relationship, then we're not going to...
0: That's such a good point. I I have been in Dad's psalm class on on Tuesday nights. I've been thinking about this recently. As we pray, sometimes when we're in a difficult situation, it's just difficult for us to even know what to pray for. And then when when the prayer is answered, it's difficult for us to understand why it was answered that way sometimes. But the more that we become like God and align ourselves with His will, the more that we will understand how to pray, what to ask, ask for, and understand when the answer is no. And so the goal is constantly to align ourselves with God's will and to become more like God so that we can understand better how to pray and understand better how to help others in that way as well. Um, and the goal, just, just like we saw in, in chapter four, the goal is not to make God's will align with ours. To completely align ours and surrender ours to God. Um, and that's what's, so, that's what's so difficult for us to, to understand sometimes when we think, oh, no, that's not the answer that we wanted. Um, but, but it is what we need. Any other thoughts there on those verses so far? Okay. All right. So then beginning in verse 13, the, the Philistines are brought low, and they no longer bother the, the Israelites all the, te- all the days of Samuel. What an amazing statement that this is, that although this has been the whole story of the book of Samuel to this point, the, the Philistines coming up against Israel, no more... Uh, do the Philistines bother Israel during, during Samuel's time? Um, and we're going to see some... Well, I'm interested to see what Dad does with some of those things later. Because we do see battles between, between the Philistines and the Israelites later. So I don't know all, what all to make of that. But nobody ask any questions about that. And we'll leave that for Dad and see what he says. Um, Maybe we can all ambush him with that question and surprise him. Um, So the Lord, uh, over and over again, uh, notice in verse 13, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So maybe the idea is just that he's kind of subduing the Philistines. Uh, But notice in verse 14, the Lord restored Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So once again, God's hand is more powerful than the Philistines' hand, and so he is victorious in this case. Samuel judges Israel all the days of his life, and notice verse 16. He would go year to year and make a circuit around around all of Israelite the Israelite area, and he would speak to different people, he would minister to these, these different cities. The last time that that phrase year to year was used was in chapter one, when, remember, um, Hannah and Penina and all of these, all of their family, they came year to year to the temple to offer sacrifices to the Lord. And so in that case, the, the idea of that phrase, year to year, it, it underlined a, a desire that Hannah had for a child, a, a crying out to the Lord, a, a barrenness that she had. Um, and then this phrase, year to year, is used again to remind us of that answered prayer. That Hannah has prayed for this child year after year. She has received this child and he has become a minister to the Lord going around and preaching year to year, all of these different places, just like uh, just like Hannah prayed that she would. Uh, one thing that we see from this chapter is that we need an intercessor. We need someone to step into the gap for us and to... To pray to the Lord and to seek forgiveness for us. So, Samuel here is a foreshadowing of Jesus. Jesus is our intercessor. He is the one, he is our high priest, he is the one who steps into the gap and makes prayers for us, makes supplications for us in order that we can be saved when when we are in dire straits when we need someone to help us and we have no way of getting out of sin by ourselves he is the one who steps into that gap and takes those those sins upon himself so he is the fulfillment of of this passage here and what Samuel does for the people okay any thoughts on chapter 7 Yeah. Is
2: it just saying there was peace on all sides?
0: Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, one thing that I read um, is that this sometimes is just used of indigenous Canaanites broadly. So, Amorites here could just mean everywhere in the land, like you said, there's peace. Um, because, yeah, like you said, we, we haven't read about any battles with the Amorites in, in, this, in this book so far. It doesn't seem like they've been an issue at all, so I think this is just a way of referring broadly to the nation and to the surrounding area that no worries, the Lord is providing peace there. That's, that's what I found on that. Um, there may be other, other thoughts on that, but that's what I saw. I thought that made sense. So, Anything else there on chapter 7? Okay, well, this is amazing. Um, We are getting into chapter 8.
1: Everybody
0: is excited, I'm sure. Um, let Let me read this for us as we begin, and then we'll have a couple of things to say about it. This is really good because these, these two chapters just go so well together. Really, what I've found about 1 Samuel is it's just really hard to stop anywhere. Everything really flows together well. Um, he, so, the situation here, as we're going to see, is remember, the Lord has just led the, the Israelites into battle and they've defeated the Philistines. So, keep that in mind as we're reading here in chapter 8. Notice, too, one thing that we, we know from history, from the Old Testament, is that usually the there is not a good... There's usually not a, a father and a son and a grandson that carry on a line in a godly way in the Old Testament. So we, we see that, for instance, with... Um, with Gideon remember his sons are not are not good people they don't follow after the, the way that Gideon did we see that we're gonna see that later with David his sons do not follow in his footsteps so there's a problem in the Old Testament of um, human successors are usually not good so we need a we need a better successor that's ultimately the problem of the Bible human successors are not good enough so these human kings are not good enough for us so we need Jesus to fill that role for us because he can rule forever and be the perfect king so we're going to see that problem here uh, crop up here in the first part of chapter 8 and so they're looking for a solution to that problem looking for some political stability and we'll see what they come up with here okay so chapter 8 beginning in verse 1 And it happened when Samuel grew old, and he set his sons up as judges for Israel. And the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his secondborn son was Abijah, judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not go in his way, and they were bent on gain and took bribes and twisted justice. And all the elders of Israel assembled and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Look, you yourself have grown old, and your sons have not gone in your ways, so now set over us a king to rule us, like all the nations. And the thing was evil in Samuel's eyes when they said, Give us a king to rule us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Heed the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For it is not you that they have cast aside, but me they have cast aside from reigning over them. Like all the deeds that they they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, even so they do as well to you. So now heed their voice... "...though you must solemnly warn them and tell them the practice of the king that will reign over them." And Samuel said all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking of him a king. And he said, "...this will be the practice of the king who will reign over you. Your sons he will take and set for himself." in his chariots and in his cavalry, and some will run before his chariots. He will set for himself captains of the thousands and captains of the fifties to plow his ground and reap his harvest and make his implements of war and the implements of his chariots. And your daughters he will take as confectioners and cooks and bakers. And your, your best fields and your vineyards and your olive trees he will take and give to his servants And your seed crops and your vineyards he will tithe and give to his courtiers and to his servants. And your best male and female slaves and your cattle and your donkeys he will take and use for his tasks. Your flocks he will tithe and as for you, you will become his slaves." And you will cry out on that day before your king whom you chose for yourself, and he will not answer you on that day. And the people refused to heed the Samuel's voice, and they said, No, a king there will be over us. And we too shall be like all the other nations and our king will rule us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel listened to all the words of the people and he spoke to them in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, "Heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his town. So there's a problem in In chapter 8 verses 1 through 3, Samuel has the idea that sort of this judge's time period will continue. And they will kind of have a a leader who is not a king, not a monarch, but is someone who uh, relies on God, looks to God for the answers to things, and sort of leads the people like they have through the judges. Or like has mostly failed through the time period of the judges, I should say. But he's got that picture of that's the way things are going to proceed from here on out. So he's training his two sons. And their names are Joel and... Abijah. There's only one problem with this, though, and it's, it's that they're basically Hophni and Phinehas 2.0. Um, they are doing the same exact things that Hophni and Phinehas were doing. They're taking bribes, and they're perverting justice. So just as Eli failed in parenting, so Samuel seems to have failed in parenting, although he has led the people to some great victories and and led this revival in in chapter 7 that we've just read, still he has failed as a whole with his own children. And so the elders of the Jews, or the elders of Israel, they they say, they recognize this problem and they say, look, you're getting old and we all know that your sons are not going to be able to take, take this role on. So we're going to have to find a way to to have some political stability here. And so they say, you know what we want? We want a king who's going to rule over us so that we can be like all the other nations. That is the reason that they want a king so that they can be like the other nations. They're going to say that again at the end of the chapter. So Samuel is is so upset at this. Notice verse 6. This is evil in Samuel's eyes. And he takes this to the Lord. Notice, though, when he, re- when he repeats this back to the Lord in verse 6, he says, give us a king to rule us. So he doesn't repeat all of what they said. He doesn't say so that we can be like the other nations. I wonder if that, re- that, that part especially really bothered him. You think about, we've talked about several times, you think about what Israel was supposed to be when they came into the land you We know, go over here. What Israel was supposed to be when they came into the land, they were supposed to be different. They were supposed to stand out so that they could bring other people to God. That was part of their, their, their job and their goal. I think
1: said in Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14, that when you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around you, you may indeed set a king over you who the Lord your God will choose. What's going to take place here was well, already foretold and so maybe Samuel wasn't ready for that to happen or maybe he forgot about this spot but the two instances of Eli and Samuel and and you see it throughout the history of Israel where you have a good king and you know even some great kings but their sons don't necessarily follow the way you can teach but you can't make somebody the and so it's sad uh, that it, it was still all the time. It was time for them to
0: have Yeah, and that's a, that's a good point there in Deuteronomy 17. It does talk about um, putting up a king there. I, I will say I've always read Deuteronomy 17 as being a provision, not necessarily being a command or a prophecy that that would be what happened, but providing that, if they chose that, um, and obviously they're choosing that now, it's obviously not, not unlawful. Um, I don't know if I'm wording that clearly. Mary, did you have something on that? Well, God says they're not rejecting Samuel, they're rejecting him. Right, so in this just like- Knows the people, what's going to happen? So, yeah, right. It's kind of, <laughs> God knew this was going to end up this way, and now the people are going to, as Samuel warns, they're going to see having a king's not great like all the other nations. But right. It's always greener on the other side, but you don't know what their people are going through to support the king. Sure. Yeah, that's a good point. that yeah that's that's a good point i no i don't think that any Any succession necessarily happens automatically. I think that this is all supposed to be the Lord's decision. I think especially you see that starkly contrasted with what we've just seen, where every move that they made in chapter 7, it was requesting of the Lord, what does he want us to do? And here it does seem like here's something the Lord does not want them to do. Right, right off the bat to start the chapter. I think that's a good point. So part of the issue is is maybe the, the Lord just didn't want this to be taking place. This is not what He had in mind. Um, but give us a king is is what the people are are calling out and saying. And so um, the Lord says, "You, they are not reject." Samuel's upset, and the Lord says, "They're not rejecting you." They're actually rejecting me from being king over them. They wanted a king who would be able to lead them out into battles. They wanted a king who would be strong in that way. That's particularly interesting in light of chapter 7, where the Lord, in a militaristic way, led them out into battle, quite literally. They they didn't hardly have to fight at all. They just followed the Lord's Lord's thundering voice in the battle, and he defeated everybody. Um, so what, what kind of king could be better than that? And I, I think that's kind of what we see in the Old Testament to this point. The people are crying out for a king, they want a king so badly And really they've had a king this whole time who is going to be better than any earthly king who will be able to take their place. Um, but yet, that's, that's such human nature. We reject God uh, in looking for, for a cheaper, uh, worse option. Constantly putting putting things in front of in front of God, and we're we're mistaking, we're we're mixing up our priorities. One last comment here. We're
3: well. I, I think it's important to note it was not during times of prosperity that the people wanted and needed or felt like they needed the Lord. Uh, when they were prosperous, uh, then they depended on themselves. And God used uh, those times to turn them back to Him.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. That is all for us tonight.